0: Sunday of Advent, and and that means today is the beginning of the church year, okay? Uh, The the church doesn't mark time like the rest of the culture marks time. We mark our time based on the life and the death and ministry of Jesus. That's how we mark our time. And so today we begin a journey. Christians all over the world uh, today and throughout the ages have marked this time of the the year as a time of preparation. We call it the, the, the... the first Sunday of Advent, and it's a time of celebration when we celebrate the coming of the Messiah. For the next four Sundays, we will be in in that season of Advent, that season of expectation and preparation, all leading to that wonderful celebration of Christmas, when God first came to dwell with us as one of us. But we're not there yet, even though I've got a huge Christmas tree right behind me. Did you notice that this morning? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's not from us. We didn't put this in there. Uh, Rosemary Beach has this wonderful uh, Christmas celebration, and they, they lit the Christmas tree uh, on Friday, and Santa Claus was in here on Saturday morning having breakfast with the kids, and this whole thing was a huge backdrop with elves and nutcrackers, and I think we've got two nutcrackers at the begin- at the entrance of the church, isn't that right? Or the town hall. Yes, well, it's all a great theme. But anyway, that's Christmas. That's actually on December 25th. I didn't know if you knew that. That's when Christmas starts. Um, Right now, we have just begun the season of Advent, and and we're not just celebrating something that happened a long time ago. We're actually celebrating, and we're meant to be preparing and anticipating with hope uh, the second coming of Jesus, when he will come again with power and great triumph, because we do believe that he's coming again to restore all things in himself. Anyway, that's what the season of Advent is about. Um, And and here's the thing, I know that it's been Christmas for a long time. It's been Christmas since Halloween out there in the culture, right? Uh, The decorations have been up for over a month now. They've been playing uh, songs about Santa Claus on the radio and in the stores for a long time already. And uh, I was in a store uh, just a few days ago, and sure enough, it was was Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock. And I'd only heard that about 15 times by then. And I'm just thinking, we're going to hate Christmas by the time we get there. We're not going to want to hear another Christmas song. But we don't sing any Christmas songs in the Anglican Church until Christmas Day. That's when we start, or Christmas Eve, that's when we start singing it. And then we celebrate Christmas for 12 full days. Even though by the time Christmas, Christmas arrives, so many of us will be ready for it to be over by then. Because it's been going on in the culture for so long. But if I could encourage you to do something. If I could just encourage you to do something. Let me encourage you to step out of the culture's time during this next uh, few weeks. Step out of the culture's time and step into the church's time, the way the church marks time. Because um, it, it would be so great, be so great if we, could, if we could let this time, these next four weeks, be a time where we are waiting and hoping and, uh, and preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. That would be great. That's what I'd love for us to do, have a time of longing and waiting and preparation. I'm not talking about buying the gifts. I'm not talking about making sure the house is clean for the guests when they come. Those things are good. I'm talking about doing the hard work of preparing our very selves and our souls and our bodies for the coming of God. Because as we will see as we look at these texts today, none other than God himself is coming. So. Um, I preached this morning at the, at, the, at the chapel at the beach because Pastor Mike, who's the pastor there, was, was out. He's on a, on a small sabbatical. And so I preached there this morning. And he always does something where he says, this is my sermon in a sentence. And I thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to do that for that congregation just because they're used to sermons having a sermon in a sentence. And so this is going to, I'm going to tell you what my sermon in a sentence is right now in honor of Pastor Mike. It is this. It's time for us to get ready Because God is coming. So wait for him, watch for him, and worship him. It's time for us to get ready because God is coming. So wait for him and watch for him and worship him. All right, we're gonna do a little bit of a Bible study this morning. So if you take out your bulletin and and turn to page five where we've got the gospel reading today, Uh, read these verses with me. You can read them silently. I will read them aloud. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. We're going to stop right there. Now what Mark is saying in these opening sentences is absolutely staggering if you know, if you, if you, if you get it. And here's why. It's because the language that he's using right here in this passage is almost identical to language that was used to describe the birth of Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. Listen to this. Listen to this from a Roman inscription that was made in honor of Caesar's birth. This is from that inscription. Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has given us Augustus Caesar and has filled him with virtue, that he might benefit mankind. And then listen to this. He was sent to us as a Savior, both for us and for our descendants. And the birth of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the whole world. Okay? This inscription in Rome calls Augustus a Savior of mankind. It calls his birth the birth of a God, the God Augustus, the beginning of the good tidings for the whole world. And you know what that word is, good tidings? Good tidings. It's the word gospel. That's literally what that word is, the gospel. Um, and, and it was used as the announcement of the birth of Caesar Augustus. That's what they were saying the gospel was. Back then, gospel wasn't a religious term. Today, that's all it is. We've got gospel music and gospel stuff. But, uh, to, but back then, gospel was just the term that meant amazing news. This is amazing news. Like when a king wins a great victory. Like when someone announces that war is over and that peace has come. It's the best kind of news. And it calls to mind the hope that good things are about to happen in this world. That's what the word gospel meant so many years ago. And for the people of Rome, the birth of Caesar was the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of the God Augustus, the savior of the world. And if you'd asked anybody in Rome at the time, is that what the gospel is? They would have said, that is what the gospel is. Because providence has given us Caesar Augustus. But now listen to this. This is, this is staggering. When you know that into the culture that Mark was writing his gospel, he wrote these words. Listen to the way he begins the gospel again. He says, um, the beginning of the gospel of the good news, not of Augustus Caesar, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here's the thing. Mark was writing to a group of persecuted Christians back then. Nero was on the throne when he wrote his gospel. And Nero's that, that uh, Caesar that you remember about him, he was the one that was fiddling while Rome was burning because he set the fire. Everybody knew it. He set the fire because he wanted to clear some land for a, greater, a bigger palace for himself. And so he was, he was fiddling because he was like, this is kind of cool, I'm getting new land. But then everybody in Rome was like, you're burning down the city and you're doing nothing about it. You know, and they started to accuse Nero. And so Nero looked around and he said, I need a scapegoat. I need somebody that I can blame to deflect the um, hatred against me away from me. And so, you know, he, he chose, he chose the Christians. And he said, it was them. They're the ones that set the fire. And so then he started rounding the Christians up. And that's where we get images of Christians being in the, uh, uh, eaten by animals in, in the, um, what's, what's that thing called? That's right, thank you. The Colosseum. The uh, Colosseum. And, that's, and, and, they, and he was crucifying Christians and he was setting wild animals against them and burning them alive because he wanted to deflect all the hatred against him uh, towards somebody else. And he thought the Christians would be a good one to do. But Mark, writing to those Christians, says that the, the, the real good news, the real gospel, isn't about C- the birth of a Caesar. It's about the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. And it's an amazing, staggering claim. Because think about it, there were no huge cathedrals back there, back then filled with Christians. There were no mega churches. There were no Christian TV channels or Christian fast food restaurants. There, were no, there was none of that. Um, there's none of that. It was nothing on earth it looked like it had any chance of rivaling the Caesars of this world. And even today, even today, the world thinks that the good news is about Caesar, really. It thinks that the, the good news is about power and dominion and force and yet into a world with Christians that had, who had no power at all, and the power of Rome seemed invincible. Mark opens his gospel by saying that the true king has come, and his name is Jesus. When the power of the world and the world's kingdoms seems so overwhelming, when it seems like nothing could be more powerful than that, and life couldn't get worse, Mark's answer and God's answer is Jesus. And Mark invites us to put our hope in him, the true son of God, and the true savior of the world. Mark tells us in the next verse just who this king, Jesus, is. So let's look at that. Verse 2. Verse 2, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now Mark here is quoting actually two Old Testament prophets. The first one is the prophet Malachi. Uh, And verse 3 is from Isaiah. And the reason he quotes these two prophets is this. It's because he wants us to see that the coming of Jesus is is a coming of two things. It's a coming of judgment and it's a coming of mercy. Uh, Because Malachi, when Malachi was writing to the the people of Israel, uh, God was using him to pronounce judgment on his people. Because the people of Israel had become selfish and ungrateful. They were robbing God by withholding their tithes. They were offering diseased animals to him instead of offering their very best. They were giving God their junk, the stuff that they didn't want anymore. They were giving that to God. And through Malachi, God says, "That's no way to treat me. You wouldn't that's no way to treat your God. And you wouldn't treat your dad like that. You wouldn't treat your king like that. So why would you treat your God like that? You're giving me the leftovers of your life. You're giving me the stuff you don't want anymore." My wife, Ashley, before we were married, she spent some time working as a missionary on the Mercy ships. Some of you have heard of of that organization. It's awesome. They go all around the world bringing uh, relief and health care to people in places where they can't get it very easily. And uh, she served as a cook on board the ship. And she said, uh, when she got back, she said it was a wonderful thing, but it was a little bit... Disheartening because every time we would come, we would be coming into a port. We would get a call from an organization that wanted to donate food to us, and so they were like, "Great, we're going to come get the food." Except every time they would come into the port, well, not every time—that was an exaggeration—but more times than not, more often than not, they would call into the port to receive this food, and it would be rotten. Crates full of totally rotten apples, crates full of stale, moldy bread. Uh, and, 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 and then here's these missionaries trying to do God's work and they've received this gift and then they've got to figure out what are we, how are we going to dispose of all this unusable food? That's the kind of thing that the people of Israel were doing to God back then in Malachi's day. They were offering the stuff that they didn't want anymore. They were they, The stuff that they were casting off. They were offering it to God as if it were good enough for Him. It wasn't good enough for me, but it was good enough for you, God. And that's a dangerous Thought For God's people, it amounted to robbery and treason against their king. And so in Malachi, the coming of God was a coming of judgment. If they kept acting like this, then they were going to be judged. In fact, at the end of Malachi, uh, God says, I'm going to send my messenger before me to prepare the way for me when I come. And he's doing that out of mercy for them because he wants them to be ready. He wants them to shape up. But, he says, if I get there and, and you're not ready, then I'm going to strike a decree of utter destruction on the land because of the way you've been treating me and the way you've been treating the people around you. It was a really harsh thing. God was coming as a judge in the, from, in the prophet Malachi. Scary, scary thing. Now, I will say this. As I, was, as I was thinking about the way that the people were treating God it, it, as I was reading through Malachi, I mean, it kind of reminds me of some of the things that I've done. Like, when I'm done with this jacket, I don't really want this jacket anymore. I'll give it to Goodwill. They'll take it, you know. Uh, oh, this, this TV kind of doesn't work anymore. Maybe I'll just offer it to this, uh, this church organization. And it kind of convicted me a little bit that maybe, maybe that's the wrong thing. It actually probably is the wrong thing. Mother Teresa once said, you know, If you're going to offer God stuff, don't offer Him the stuff you don't want anymore. Offer Him the best stuff, because it's God. Anyway, it's it's a powerful thing. Anyway, Malachi, God was coming in judgment. He said, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord when He comes. The great and terrible day. And who can stand on that day? That's the first prophet that Mark quotes when he's talking about this person who's coming. But the second one he quotes is Isaiah. And we love Isaiah more than we love Malachi, because in Isaiah, God comes in mercy. And that's okay. It's okay to love that part of it because that's, that's the God I want too. Because this is how it starts. This is how um, it's actually in your bulletin. Isaiah starts like this. Comfort comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert, for, a desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's the way, uh, that's the next prophet that uh, that Mark is quoting when he talks about this person who's coming. So now I want to ask you this. In this morning service, there were very few people that could relate to this next image and so... um, I'm just going to offer it to you anyway because it's always great when the preacher talks about something that nobody understands and can relate to. But have you seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Can you raise your hand if you have? Great, okay. Oh, look, we've got more, I think a greater percentage in this congregation saw that movie. But anyway, it's the movie with Russell Crowe. It's about the, uh, the general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, and the gladiator who defied an emperor. It's a great movie. Um, I love it. And I don't know if you've, I don't know whether I'm recommending it to you as a, as a priest or not, but it's a great movie, and I think it's great. But here's the thing. After the opening battle scene where Maximus, who's the, uh, the Roman general played by Russell Crowe, he has just led the, the Roman armies against the final battle against the barbaric, uh, Germanic barbarians, and there's a scene, in, in, and I don't know if you've seen this because it only lasted about three seconds in the movie, but I'm going to make a big deal out of it. Um, there's a scene in which Commodus and Lucilla, the son and daughter of the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor at the time, they are traveling to the front lines to observe the war. Do you, those of you who have seen it, do you remember what the carriage looked like that they were traveling in? Do you remember that? Not really? Yeah, that's okay. It lasted three, literally, literally three seconds. But here's the thing. I'll describe it to you because I paid attention. It looks like a gold-plated Prevost coach. I mean, it is this enormous thing. Uh, and what's crazy is that they were traveling on a road that had been built all the way from Rome to the front lines of the battle so that the, tw- the 20 horses that it took to-, to haul this huge carriage, this gold carriage, could-, could make it all the way to the front lines. It, was- it had been especially prepared for them, this road, for the emperor and his family to use as they traveled in this coach. It had been paved. And the thing is, that road was hundreds of miles long hundreds of miles long. It led all the way back to Rome. And how long would it take to build a road like that? How many people did it take? How many men did it take to shovel all that, to clear all the trees and to shovel all the dirt and to clear all the the boulders and the rocks and to fill it in and make it level and straight so this enormous, heavy, gold emperor's coach could make it from Rome to the front line? Moving all the dirt would have been a monumental task. And I just can't imagine it. But, you know, back then, if you found out, if you got notice that the emperor was coming to your town, this is what you would do. First of all, you would look at each other and say, should we be really scared? Is this going to be a bad thing that the emperor is coming? But the next thing you would do is you would get as many people as you could uh, engaged in making the roads ready for the emperor to come. You wouldn't expect the emperor to to make it down your narrow roads and to make it over the, the bumps and everything else. You'd go out there and you'd move out all the rocks and the boulders and you'd fill in the ruts so you could so we would have a smooth path to make it into your town on. That's what you would do. You'd straighten them out so that when the enter, emperor came, he would have roads fit for him to come to your town. Look again at verse 4 in this, in this bulletin. This is what it says. Every... Valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. When the emperor comes, when the emperor comes, you remove the rocks and you remove the borders, the boulders, you fill in the ruts and you, make the, uh, you smooth out the bumps so that he has a smooth road to travel on. But Isaiah says that when this king comes that he's talking about, When this king comes, it's not rocks that you're moving out of the way. Mountains are being brought down. Do you see the difference? We're talking about a a completely different order of kingship at this point. Because for the emperor, you move out the rocks. But for this king, you bring down the mountains. For the emperor, you smooth out the ruts. But for this king, you fill in the valleys. It's an amazing thing. Do you see what's happening here? Who is this king? that's coming. Who is the king that we're preparing for if we're clearing out mountains and filling in valleys? He's no mere emperor of Rome. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's God Almighty himself, the maker of heaven and earth. That's who's coming. And by quoting that passage from Isaiah, Mark is saying that the one that Isaiah was talking about back in chapter 40 was none other than Jesus himself. At the beginning of the gospel, Mark says that the true good news isn't about the Caesar of Rome. It isn't about power and dominance and force. It's about, it's the true good news is about Jesus. And then he says that, that the God spoken of by Malachi and by Isaiah and all the prophets of old, that God that the people have longed for to come, Mark says that that God has come, just like he said he would, and his name is Jesus. He's the true king, and not only that, but he is God himself. He's come among us. Back then, it had been 400 years since the people had heard from God. 400 years of silence from the prophets. And I imagine that many of them had begun to wonder if it were really true, what they had heard. Is is He really going to come and rescue us? Is the Messiah really going to come? And I imagine some of them really didn't expect that He was. They didn't expect God to show up. And so my question for you today is this. Who are you expecting? And what are you expecting this Christmas? And who are you waiting for this Advent? Are you truly hoping for God to show up? Do you really believe that God could make a difference in your life? And if so, then how are you preparing the way? How are you making the paths straight? Are there paths in your life that you expect him to follow? Are there rules and, and, and requirements that you have for how God has to behave before you will receive him? Have you set up those kind of rules? I know people that are super happy to receive God's blessings. They love that, but they're not willing to change anything about the way they live. They love the idea of God being for them, but they're not so big or not, and not even really interested at all about living for him. And so, it, it, this king doesn't go around our corners this king doesn't, doesn't follow our paths. He doesn't climb over the mountains of your conceit and self-importance, nor does he travel through the valley, the narrow valleys of your preconceived ideas and requirements for him. So how are you preparing for this king to come today? Are you filled with expectation and hope this Advent season? Are you expecting God to act in powerful ways in your life and in the lives of your family and friends? Or are you expecting, you know what, nothing much is going to happen. Nothing much ever does. A well known pastor wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. And in it, he he said that today most Christians live practically like atheists, meaning that they believe in God, but not enough for it to really change them. They believe in God, but they don't really trust Him. They believe in God, but they don't really expect that He's going to show up in their lives. In other words, their belief in God really makes no difference in the way they live their lives. Is that you today? I mean, can you see a little bit of that in you? People, it's time to get ready because none other than God is coming. And I, and, and I, and I just wonder, what if, what if you lived every moment like you really believed it was true? What if you started every day expecting God to show up that day and do something in your life? What if you lived in such a way that you were always looking for Jesus in the circumstances that surrounded you and in the people in your life? What if you live like you really did expect God to show up? Just think of what God might do in you and through you. My prayer for you today, my prayer for us, my prayer for me and all of us is that we will be filled with longing and hope in this Advent season, that we will wait for him, that we will watch for him, and that we will worship him not just during Advent, but all the days of our lives. And that we prepare our hearts to receive him when he comes. Because he is. He is coming. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, I, I ask that you to fill our hearts with love for you. Fill us with hope. Fill us with expectation. Help us to make ourselves ready. Give us the courage to tear down the mountains and fill in the valleys in our lives for you to come and do amazing things in us and through us. And God, for anyone here that doesn't know you or doesn't expect you to show up, who doesn't expect you to make any difference in their lives, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in an unmistakable way so that they might know you and put their trust in you. God, we love you and we bless you. And we pray this.